Christ. Because you wanted to reconcile your people back to yourself. Those who have come to believe in that sacrifice have been reconciled and have been given a ministry of reconciliation that we would go tell others about what is to come. And that is the final reckoning. That is when the bowls of wrath are poured out upon the world because you are a just God. And you cannot allow willful rebellion to go unpunished. And we all, everyone, everyone who's ever lived says amen to that. It's just that most people don't turn to you in the midst of that. Lord, that your punishment is just and right. And you warn us that it's coming because you want us to turn to you. Lord, your discipline is real and evident, and you use it in our lives to get our attention. Lord, I thank you for those moments, the refiner's fire, because you are with us in them, and it is in that refiner's fire that you heat us up that we might glow in Christ's likeness. So I pray that that would be the end of this morning. Lord, I pray that each of us would walk out of here having been heated up, because we have experienced the spirit of the living God. Lord, I pray that each of us would walk out of here hot-hearted to share with the world a ministry of reconciliation. Lord, we thank you most of all for the fact that you willingly put your son on a cross and crushed him because you knew what was coming and you wanted to save us from the destruction. Lord, may you open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your truth in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. There's a scene in Matthew chapter 9 where Jesus has been engaging with the Pharisees for a while, and they're very high and haughty and think of themselves as better than those sinners, which tends to happen to religious people everywhere. But at one point, he finally dis he disengages from them, and it says that he just looks out at the crowd. And it says that his heart broke for the people because they were dispirited and distressed. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And then he says, turns to his disciples and he says to them, so here's the thing, gentlemen, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would raise up workers for his field. Do you hear his heart for people? He, his heart broke for them because they did not even know they needed help. They were sheep without a shepherd. And then his answer is, pray that the Lord would raise up shepherds. Right, do we see the world that way? Like, do we see people that way? Do we see the people that God has placed in our lives that way? There are only two ways of living in this world, and there only ever have been. There's only two kingdoms in this world, and there only have been since the fall. And they are his kingdom controlled by Christ and the world's kingdom controlled by Satan. And he uses us to warn people about the second one that they might come into the first one. That's what this whole series in, in Revelation and Daniel have been about. That we live in this tension of a God who sent his son to finish the reconciliation at the cross and at the same time not have completed the work at his final coming. 
because by then it's too late. And in the meantime, in this tension we live in, we, are, we, get the, we get the joy of being sanctified into the image of Christ, and we also get the joy of sharing him with a world that needs to hear that final judgment's coming. I found myself almost apologetic about today's message, because it's just, I mean, I'll be honest, I mean, it's, it's, if you read the daily reading like you should have, you know, my wife looked at me when she closed her Bible this morning and said, you know, I'm really enjoying these daily readings. Thank you. I'm like, you know, I find myself, I found myself almost apologetic, but guys, it's not my message. God convicted me during our prayer time up here this morning as we were praying together before the service started and going, you know what, this is Christ. Who am I to apologize for the word of God? Like, seriously, who do I think I am? Right? It's because I've, I want you people to like me or I want you people to like God. That's how we got into this mess, right? We're trying to preach a God that is soft and fluffy because somehow that sells. But I get ahead of myself. So today, we're looking at Revelation chapters 17 and 18, and we're going to ask this question about this kingdom conflict. Whose side are you on? Proverbs 14 says this, There's a way that seems right to a man, and in the end it leads to death. And that's part of our outline today. In fact, I'm going to tell you where we're going to go ahead of time, just so you know. Chapter 17, we're going to look at that. We're going to use that proverb as the outline. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So, if you are drinking the world's Kool-Aid, you are setting yourself up for a world of hurt. And that's what chapter 18 is about. So open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 17. We've, yes, we have two chapters to try to get through the, today, this morning, on purpose, because we're not going to get stuck in the details, much to the joy of some and the chagrin of others. But it's keeping us focused on the main thing, and the main thing is Jesus Christ and the fact that he is coming again and that his plan will not be thwarted. But we're going to start by looking at verse 1 of chapter 17. Well, I read the first few verses of chapter 17 to end the message last week. Those are all online. The whole series is online. If you want to listen to them or watch them, you can do that. Just go to our website. But I'm going to pick it up in verse 1 and 2 of Revelation 17, and we're going to look at how there is a way that seems right to a man. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, that was last week, came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. We're starting to enter into this time where I was going to talk about this world system where these people have, where everybody has bought into this idea of a one world government, one world religion, one world economic system that we're actually seeing starting to happen before our very eyes. At, outside the UN, there's a picture of, there's, there's a wall. And it's got Isaiah verse 2 on it. It says, And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will, no, will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. And doesn't that sound like good news? And it is. It was written 700 years before Christ came. My question is, why hasn't the United Nations put the whole verse up there? Because the words before those words say this. And he will judge between the nations, that he is God, and he will render decisions to many peoples. The reason is because it's a control issue. 
It has always been a control issue. That was Satan's issue at the fall. That's how he lured Adam and Eve into falling in the garden. And we have been willing rebels ever since then, every single one of us that's ever lived. And, and evidence of even something like a simple sign outside the UN shows our rebellion. They want the reward. They want the honor. They want the glory of bringing all the peoples of the world together. Ultimately, it's just a tool of the enemy. Guys, this one world government that we're going to, that we're going to look at, this one world religion, this one world economy that you're starting to see happen in places like Europe, and that's what Brexit is such a big deal right now, and all these things are going on. Guys, all of it is a tool of Satan. Does that mean that everything in all of those things is completely evil? Absolutely not. But what it does mean is we need to, we need to be watching whatever news you feel like you need to watch with the filter of a biblical perspective going, this is all in control of the enemy because the enemy is the God of this world and we know what happens in the end anyway. So we are not to lose heart and wring our hands and wail like the people of the world are wailing. What Revelation and Daniel are doing is they are showing us what's real. What we're going to see today in all of its sort of illusion and, and, and some of the imagery that you're going to see is, is God showing us how the physical and the spiritual are together. We tend to think that this physical is all there is and the spiritual is just this thing that's out there and someday it'll come together. No, the spiritual is among us as well. The angels are among us as well. The demons are among us as well. And what Revelation is showing us is, is the world from God's perspective, through the eyes of Christ. And as believers, we should be seeing it that way as well. We should be seeing that, that the people that we are so frustrated with in politics or that we're so frustrated with sitting next to us, our issue isn't with them. It is with the God of this world that is behind that. Our, our first conflict is not with the face in front of us, it's with the enemy. And if we don't connect that, we're not taking the fight far enough back. That's what Revelation is showing us. It's seeing the world through spiritual eyes. So look at verse 3. It says, And then he, so this is John, the Apostle John speaking, he, this angel, carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. So, so God is he's showing us, even in how he has John write this, he's saying, I'm, I'm pulling back the veil. I am unveiling. That's what Revelation is. It's apocalyptic literature. It just means to pull back the veil. He is saying, he carried me into the spirit in this wilderness. He's saying, I'm going to show you spiritual things now, John. So what is he going to show them? He's going to show them what He's going to show John, and then John is showing us what really is going on in the world. So pick it up in the rest of verse 3. It says, And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. These are the false religions of the world. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having, her hand a gold, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of unclean things, and in her and and unclean things of her immorality, and in her, on her forehead was written the name, mis, was written the name, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and the abomination of all the earth. This is a culmination of the world system all in one place. It's not, I, I don't, it's not a literal female. It is, it is a description of what is this culmination of the world system that is ultimately controlled by Satan. Who is she? Who is, I'll, I'll call her a she, it's the world system. Who is she? Well, she's the great harlot. 
Verse 2 told us that she was the great harlot. Verse 5 tells us she was the, is the great harlot. Right? Harlot is just, so, she, well, so was she, is she a prostitute? The answer is yes. Because all idol worship, all, which is sin, all sin is spiritual adultery. So when it's describing her as a harlot, it's just saying that as much as all of us put things ahead of God, we are all adulterers apart from Christ. She is also the great seducer of the nations. You see how in verse 2 it talks about how all of the nations of the world drank from her. Man, they, everybody, it's human nature to want in on the world system. And it sells, guys. Just watch commercials between the, the when, you're, when you're watching the football game today. What are they selling? They're selling the world. I mean, it is, it is as worldly. You can't, I, we don't even watch the commercials because you can't because they're so worldly. But ultimately, all it is, is is the enemy doing what, frankly, what our fallen hearts want to do, and that's partner in idolatry, partner, partner in adultery. This includes people in the church, and you're going to see this as we move forward in chapter 18. Guys, I, I want you to write this down. The greatest, because we, we tend to wring our hands about, just like the Pharisees did in, in that opening passage in Matthew 9, the, all those sinners out there. The greatest danger in the church today is not persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. The greatest danger in the bride of Christ today is not persecution from the world. It is seduction by the world. Guys, we wring our hands, and rightly so, when we see like decisions being brought down by the Supreme Court or politicians doing things that are, that are wholly unbiblical. I understand that. But, but guys, we, the amount of energy and angst we put into those big issues and at the same time just are seduct seductively like drawn into a lukewarm, mediocre, just living life like the rest of the world does, spirituality as Christians, that is doing way more damage. Guys, the world has always been rotten since the fall. The problem now is the light is not bright and the salt has lost its flavor. Because, because the church, which is supposed to be the light and the salt, has stopped being that. The darkness is not increasing nearly like because it's just getting stronger. The world, or the, or the church, is getting weaker. Not because he's getting weaker, but because we are, sedu we are seduced by the enemy into so many worldly things. But guys, here's the challenge for us. As we, what happened to the church is, is, is in, a, in a very good effort to reach down and save the world, the church fell in. Right? We just did. And now we're, instead of just being like, we're not, we're not in the world, we're not of the world, but we're in the world, now we are in and of the world as a church. But because we, we sort of fell into that mess. But, the, but, but here's part of that challenge for us. We need to stay strong against sin and soft to the sinner. Does that make sense? We need to stand strong for biblical truth and at the same time not lead with a two-by-four when we're talking to the unbelieving world. Jesus looked out at the crowds and he's like, my heart breaks for them. Because he's like, it's not even their fault they're being deceived by the enemy and they don't even know it. 
So get people, to, so pray that the Lord will bring people into their lives that will share the gospel. That's what we're to be about. Verses 3 through 6 talk about this. So if you, look at, if you look at verse 6, it says, And I saw a woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. Yeah, I would too. He's trying to figure out what in the world is going on here. He was greatly astonished is what that word really means there. But ultimately what he's saying is that, that, that this Babylon, Babylon has always been synonymous in Scripture with idol worship. The world system is just an idol-worshiping system. The politics, the, the economics, and then eventually what's going to become this one-world religion is all about idol worship. And it always has been. Where did Babylon start? The Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 was a tower to be raised up to worship false gods. That's why, that's why God destroyed it and sent the people scattering. Because they were trying to worship false gods. We saw in Dan where, where was Daniel taken to? Babylon. What was going on in Babylon? A whole lot of false, false god worship. Right? It is always, so, so Babylon is just, it's not actually, I don't believe, it's the actual city of, of what still exists in ancient, in, in what is now Iraq, ancient Babylon. I, it's just a, just like the harlot is a picture of the world system, Babylon is just a picture of idolatry, idol worship. The bottom line is the world hates us as Christians. That's what chapter 6 is saying. Look at how she, the world system is drunk with the blood of the saints. Man, that's saints are us, Christians. The world hates us. Why? Because it hates, it hates Christ. You don't believe that the world hates you? Just try quoting John 14, 6 in your school. Just try, post, post it on Facebook. Tweet it. Put it on Instagram or whatever else you're on. Just, just put out that, that Jesus Christ is the only way, truth, and life, and watch what the world says. Guys, if you're not feeling the heat for being a Christian, then how hot-hearted are you? Because the truth is, if, if, the, if there is the world and there is Christ, and these kingdoms are in conflict with each other, if you're not experiencing any conflict, it's because you're not in the fight. So we got to get in the fight and be hot-hearted. Okay, so today we're asking the question, whose side are you on? There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Look at verses 7 and 8. The angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that I saw was and is not and is about to come and out of the abyss and go into destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written on the book of life from the foundation of the world, those are the unbelievers, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. The beast is the Antichrist. I'm moving through these fast. He was not and is and is to come. It's because back in chapter 13, we saw how the Antichrist comes, comes to power comes to public knowledge, and then appears to get assassinated. And he is brought back to life. He is resurrected, in a sense. He is mimicking what happened to Christ, because isn't that what Satan does? He is a liar and a mimicker. He wants to mimic the good news because he figures I can lure people in that way, and that's what he's doing. He, come, he comes as an angel of light telling people, I've got a pretty good thing going here, and oh, by the way, look how powerful I am. I can even come back to life. I was, is not, and will come again. Verses 11, 9 through 11. 
Here, in the, here is the mind which has wisdom. So he's saying, understand this. The seven heads are the seven mountains which the, woman, which, on the, which the woman sits. These are seven world empires, that five of which were around when John wrote this. Right? They were, um, it started out, they were with um, the Egyptian empire, and then the Assyrians took over the Egyptians, and we looked at this in Daniel. And then um, the Babylonians took over for um, the Assyrians, and then the Persians took over the Babylonians, and then the Romans eventually took over the Persians. And we've seen all of that through this series. So there's five of them. One of them is still um, in his, or one of them is, I'm sorry, the other one was Greece, not the, Alexander the Great. That's right. The other one was Greece. The fifth one was Greece. The sixth one was the Roman Empire. That's what's existing when John was alive. So it's currently, like when John was writing Revelation. And the, se- and the last empire is the one that is to come, this one world order for lack of a better phrase. The bottom line, and then you say, wait, well, what is with the, well, then what's with the eighth one? The eighth one is, is what's going to happen is the Antichrist is going to, he comes back to life, and then halfway through what we think of as the Great Tribulation, he's going to, his identity is going to become clear. And he is going to take, and we're going to see this here in just a minute, and he's going to take over all of the world system, and the world is going to hate him too. And he's going to establish his kingdom. And by then, it's too late for everybody. But, get the, but don't miss the main point here. It says in verse 12, Then the ten horns which I saw are the ten kings, these are these empires, that yet to receive the kingdom, but they received authority as the king, as kings with the beast for one hour. So he's going to, the Antichrist is going to give these world leaders some authority for a while, but then he's going to yank it back. They have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. Now get this, verse 14. These, all, this world pow- these world powers are going to wage war against the Lamb, and the, and the Lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Guys, that's the point. The point of all of this is for, for us as believers is, we, is that the enemy is real. The enemy really, I mean, spiritually and physically is really attacking the church today, but we are overcomers because he overcame. And we've got to hang on to that. They will overcome. It doesn't say they might, we, we might overcome them. We sure hope we overcome him. It says, and they will overcome them, not by our strength, but by the blood of the lamb, right? That's what it's, that, that, that's ultimately what it is because he's the one who has called us, chosen us, and is faithful. All of this is all about kingdom conflict. J.I. Packer, theologian, said, he said this. He went to be with the Lord fairly recently. He said this. Revelation demonstrates that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment and climax of history. Believers live after Jesus' first coming, suffering as he suffered, but full of hope because of his atoning death and their assurance of his victory. Victorious, glorious return. Ultimately, verses 15 through the end of the chapter, through verses 18, just sum, they just summarize this, what this one world government is going to look like. Guys, if chapter 17 is talking about how the world is in the grip of, of, this, of the Antichrist and of Satan, ultimately, chapter 18 is, is going to show us, and we're going to turn there now, chapter 18 is going to show us how much the world loves what he's selling. So it's not really moving forward in time. It's just giving us a little different perspective on what's going on here. So today's question, whose side are you on? The answer is if there is a way that seems right to a man, but its way, its end leads to death, 
So if you're drinking the world's Kool-Aid, that's a phrase from, I don't know if it was just from my generation or not, but if you're drinking the Kool-Aid, that was a way of saying you're just going along with what's being sold. I won't go into where that phrase came from because it's pretty dark. But, and, and, and actually satanic. Um, however, it is this idea that you're just drinking what the world's selling. So let's pick it up in verse 18, in, in uh, chapter 18, verse 1. It says, After these things I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. Stop there for a second. Angels, are they powerful or what? This angel is apparently so powerful, he is brightening the entire world with his glory. Right? I, I'm assuming it's Michael. I don't know. It says, and he carried, with, out, with a, he carried out, out, with, out with a loud voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of her wine and the passion of him, her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her, sensual, of, her, of her sensuality. Guys, do you see how powerful and alluring the world system is? But here's the problem. We can convince ourselves that, you know what? I, I want all that the world has to offer, and I still want God. Grace does not work that way. I want all that the world has, and, and, and yet I, still, I can still have this relationship with God. The only way that works is when you develop false religions that tell people, so okay, yeah, you can have that. Because all you, really have, is all you really have to do is believe what you believe. As long as you're sincere about what you believe, you're okay. That's what the world is selling in all of its false religions. That's how it gets away with so many different religions that ultimately the Antichrist is going to bring together as one. As long as you're sincere, that's all that matters. Guys, th we know that's not, that doesn't even logically make sense. Right? Like, just, just really believing something doesn't make it true. Right? I can really believe that I have a Ferrari sitting out in the parking lot. It ain't going to show up there. Nor would I really want it to. But I'd sell it and use it to build the church. But... <laughs> so God, if you want to bring a Ferrari, go ahead. Guys, back to the seduction, the church is, is, is like the slow fade of the church, and I know we talk about this a lot. I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about this morning because the text is going to talk about it for us here in just a minute. But guys, our ten, where it all starts is what, we've, what we have done in Christianity is we've just made Jesus this friend, warm, fuzzy, loving, comforting, almost looks like a, like a sweet little old man person who's along with us on the journey. We get phrases like, God is my co-pilot, right? No, the truth is you stole the car, right? Each of us have stolen the car. If God is your co-pilot in your life, you're in the wrong seat because God should be driving the bus, right? And, and we have to get past this idea that somehow Jesus is just one more thing that we put into an already busy life. And as long as we have that room we call Jesus, we're okay, because that's not scriptural. Look at what it says in verses 4 and 5. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as the heaven, and God has remembered her iniquity. Those are the bowls of wrath we saw last week. Guys, the, tr the truth is that, that this, this right here, come out of her, my people. This is why we are doing this series in Revelation. 
Because I read that and, I, and my heart just broke. Because this is God's people he's talking about. This is the church that has been seduced back into the world. They have been sucked back into this, this life of like just mediocre lukewarmness that we saw in Revelation 2 and 3. Guys, Jesus could not have made it more clear. In, in Matthew 16, it says this, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. It starts there. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever wishes to lose his life for my sake will find it. Now guys, get this. For what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Guys, we need, to let, we need to let that just simmer a lot longer than we do. Like we read that, take up your cross and follow him, and we turn it all into these little, uh, this is just my burden to bear. Guys, this is, this is a call to radically different living. This is a call to leave your wants behind and for the sake of his name and the glory and fame of his name to live a life of sacrifice. Because... Anything short of that is forfeiting your soul. Now, I'm going to take that in two different ways right here. One is, the, is the, obviously the big one. Forfeit your soul as in your eternal damnation because you have not come to faith in Christ. You have not, you have not called him Lord and Savior. Guys, that is forfeiting your soul to the, um, to the nth degree. But for those of us that are, that are sanctified or being sanctified as saints, guys, what does forfeiting our soul look like? It looks like every time we give a piece of our heart to something other than Christ. Right? Not, not unto salvation. That, that's a different conversation I'm having. But, but guys, I, I was, as I was rereading and rereading and meditating on that passage even this morning, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What the Holy Spirit hit me with was, Doug, how many things do you forfeit your soul over again and again and again because you step into that temptation, you step into that argument, you step into that world's whatever rather than just praising Christ? Every one of those times, that part of me, that part of my heart gets hard or it starts to atrophy just shrivel up? Because all of us are guilty of that. Like, we don't want to just go, okay, well, that, that, you know what I mean? That, that, that's part of our problem in the church. We have this idea that, well, because I, say, I, can, say, I can pick a time or I can, I can remember a time where I walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, raised my hand, whatever it is, I'm in. It doesn't matter from here on out. That is just not biblical. There's no part of that that's in Scripture. None of it. We have got to get more serious about our walk with Christ. When he says, come out of her, my people. Guys, we have to realize that it is possible for the family of God to be lured in to the world system. And we see that. We've seen that before. Guys, the, the, the truth is that, that the, world's, the, the church's spending habits are no different than the world's. The amount of, the amount of sin struggles within the church are no different than in the world's system. When he says, come out of her, my people, we can make it really personal and say, guys, we are either living self-centered or we are living Christ-centered. And, and when, we are, when we are spending our money the same way that the world is and we're spending our time the same way the world is and we're spending and we're, and we're looking at the same things the world is looking at and we're doing, guys, how, 
That's exactly what, who he's talking about. Come out of her, my people. I get that it's a wrestle. I, like, okay, wait a minute. What's, what's, what's okay to look at? What's not okay to look at? What's okay to... I get that. There, I mean, there are things that are obviously evil and good, and then there's that whole rest of the world. It's like, is it a bad thing for me to go home and watch the Cardinals win today? Right? No. However, if I do that instead of spending time with him in the Word or spending time with God's people, or, then that's a bad thing. Guys, I'll, I'll make it really personal. Parenting. Because we parent our kids exactly the way the world parents them. And, I'm not, and, I, and I know I'm not speaking to everybody here, I, and all of us are different. I'm, I'm making absolute statements that are, that are not fair because everybody, I'm talking to a, you know, 150 people that are all at different levels. But just, just take something very practical like parenting. If we parent our kids exactly the way the world parents them, by doing things like saying, you know what, the best thing I can do is set you up for college so you can get into the right school. So I'm going to have you take all these tests and go to this tutoring and blah, blah, blah. Guys, the end game for your kids is not Harvard, it's heaven. That's the win, right? But we also run them from event, and because you know what, the most important thing is for them to be happy. So they're not really happy here, so I'm going to take them over here to this youth group, or I'm going to take them over here to do this thing, or I'm going to, because the important thing is for them to be happy. No, the important thing for them is to learn how to give their lives away to the bride of Christ. Because kids that are doing that stick. That's what all of the evidence shows. You want to teach your children how to do something that's going to keep them with Christ. It is, you're going to teach them how to be in God's Word and respond to it every day. Which, by the way, I'll be showing you up front here at 12 o'clock if you'd like to come. And you're going to teach them how to give their life away to the bride of Christ. Those two things, every survey that's been taken over the last 20 years, shows those two things are what keep young people in the church. But we parent exactly like the world does, and then we lament that 60 to 80% of our kids are wandering away from the faith. It is not the universities that are stealing our kids. It is us who are not doing a good job of parenting them, parenting them in the gospel. And that is a, guys, I, I'm not doing it perfectly. We are, we are in a wrestle. Right now, all five of us, the, the, myself, my wife, and, three, and the, my three daughters, all five of us are in college. All five of us, or three of those five, have night classes, different nights of the week. We're fighting to find time to have dinner together. It's a wrestle of, okay, do I take this class or not? Do I, I, I get the fight. It's not all black and white. Guys, One of the things that our world has used to suck our kids away is sports. I coach sports. I coach 20-something seasons of sports in my 15 years in public school. I'm telling you it is sucking the life out of our kids in the church because what we're doing is we're telling our kids, you know what, the best thing for you to do is go be part of this sports program even if it takes you out of your small group, even if it takes you out of Sunday church. I say that with all conviction and yesterday, and yesterday as a family, we wrestled all day long because Emma plays tennis. She signed up for a, a, a tournament. She was supposed to play Friday and a couple of matches on Saturday and, and possibly, but not very likely, Sunday. And we were like, you know what, we'll just get there when, if, if that even comes up. Well, because the way the tournament was run, she gets to play Friday. She doesn't play at all Saturday. She spent her own $60 to get into this tournament. So... The, the guy calls her yesterday afternoon and says, your match is not today. It's Sunday morning at 
the fight is real. The fight is real. Because you know what? This is a young, this is a young lady who, she's here 50 out of 52 Sundays a year. Most of the time, because she plays four instruments, up here serving in the church. How, hard, how bad would it have been for her to go play tennis this morning? The answer is not. Honestly, that's the wrestle. But of her own will, she came out and she said, I'm not going. With tears in her eyes. Why? Because she gets it. She gets it. It's a fight. Guys, the fight is real. The question, but what we, what we had to filter through as a family, what I, I'm not, guys, I am not here to make anybody feel bad. I'm not. I am, here to, I am here, though, to hopefully see if the conversation around your dinner table, or even as a couple, if you don't even have kids anymore, changes. Do you ask the question, what is more honoring to God? What will bring God more glory? What will make me look more like Christ? Because the answer to those questions are not always black and white. Yesterday was not a black and white. I could make a great argument for how the best thing Emma could have done was gone down there to play tennis and be a light to the person she hopefully beat this morning. I could make that argument. And I frankly would have been at peace if she just said, I'm going. Because for her, that's not a habit. That's not something she, it's the, it was the wrestle that I appreciated. It was her heart to go, not to just go, you know what, well, of course I would go do this thing instead of that thing. Of course I would stay home, let me take it off of sports, of course I would stay home and study rather than go to my youth group or rather than go to my, to my small group. I, guys, I get, it's a fight. We're wrestling through, do we go to this group or not? As a family, do we, do we stay involved in this group or not? We, only have, we have one night a week that we get to be home together. How do we spend it? It's a fight. Fil that took me way longer than I meant to take. Filter it through this. That's all I'm asking you to do. Do not filter it through what the world is telling you. Because here's what the enemy is telling you. What is fun is what is right. That is not truth. Now, Serving Christ can and should be fun. The joy of the Lord is our strength. But filter it through the right things. Filter your decision making. Do I take this job or not? Do I do this thing or not? Do Guys, ask yourself the question, which one will make me look more like Jesus Christ? Because when he comes back, the my people he's calling out of the church are the, are the ones, are, guys, the ones that are in, that are in with him are the ones that look like him. Because they've given, and, and guys, the only way we look like him is by sacrificing. He learned obedience through what he suffered. I don't even know what to skip. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So if you're drinking the world's Kool-Aid, you're setting yourself up for a world of hurt. Look at verse 6. says, pay her back even as she paid and, and give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. So this is God talking about the cup of wrath getting poured out on the world system. 
to the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously to the same degree, give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I am not a widow and I will never see mourning. For this reason, one day her plagues will come and will come pestilence and mourning and famine and she will be burned up with fire. For the Lord God who judges who judges her is strong. Guys, the rest of this chapter, so, get, so, so here's, the, here's, she start, here's where my mind started to wrestle. So how do I know? How do I know which one I am? How do I, like, the answer is, the rest of this chapter goes through three times. Look, look at verse 10. There's three woe, woe, woes here. Verse 10, it says, standing at a distance because of the fear of her, tormented, saying, woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour her judgment has come. Verse 11, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargo anymore. Now look at verse 16, saying, woe, woe, here's another woe, 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 the great city. She has she was clothed with fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious. So it's like the world system had all of this beauty and things going for it. And that's what success looks like. And in one hour, such wealth has been laid in waste. Now look at verse 20 or verse 19. And they saw dust on their heads and were crying and weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city in which all the ships at sea come writ became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid in waste. Guys, what is the world lamenting there in all of those woes? That's the rest of the chapter. The rest of the chapter is, here's what's coming, world. Here, because the next thing in chapter 19, praise the Lord, when we get back from retreat, we're going up the mountain to, be, to become a bride made ready, to learn to live ready and have some fun doing it. We're going to come down the mountain and we're going to see the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's, verse, that's chapter 19. Praise the Lord, we turn the page. I'm excited. But guys, what is the world lamenting here? The world is lamenting the loss of its stuff. So as the music team comes up and we get ready to respond to what God is calling us to, that's the question I have for you. Where are you at in the woes? Where are you at? Well, the way you know the answer to that is, do you lament things being taken from you. Stuff. And guys, it could be physical stuff. It could be your bank, you know, bank account. It could be like, I, I, it could be your time. Do you lament having to serve because you would rather do, because this other thing seems more fun? Do you lament a relationship that God has taken away from you? It's not just physical things. You might be sitting here going, you know, I'm not really into physical stuff. I'm not materialistic. It's not, guys, do you woe over the things God is clearly trying to pull away from you as he refines you into his glorious image? That's how you know. Like, that's how we know which camp we're in. Two, two kingdoms, conflict. Which one are we in? There's only two choices. The way we know which one we're in is by going, what, which one do I find joy in living for? My wife looked at me yesterday after Emma had said what she said and, and I was struggling with her pain. And I said, and she looks at me, she says, there is no greater joy than this. 
than to see your children walking in truth. Because I'll let you know a little secret. That wasn't written to parents. That was written to the church. Spiritual children. There's no greater joy than this, than, 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 than Jesus Christ looking down and seeing his children walking in his truth. Paul said, I count this suffering as nothing compared to the surpassing glory that will be revealed. Because that, that's ultimately at the heart of this question. What are we living for? The, the tension is, do I come to church on Sunday or not? Do I do this or not? Do I, ha do I have time in the Word or not? Do I, those, are the, those are the points of tension. The, the real question is, what are you living for? Or who are you living for? Listen to how Paul says it. For you have been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, praise the Lord, that's salvation, but also to suffer for his sake. Why is that not a bumper sticker? Right? Why, why is that not like, okay, yeah, I get that. Because that doesn't sell. But it's the truth. But guys, the only way in to that reality, where that reality of suffering for Christ's sake becomes the joy of your life is if you're born again. If you are truly a regenerate, born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you don't, you don't, you consider it all joy. Because you're like, man, it is producing in me an eternal way to glory far beyond all comparison. For I don't look at the things that are seen. I don't look at the world system. I look at the things that are unseen. Because they're the things that are going to last forever. Let's pray. So Father, I thank you for the truth that You are relentless. <laughs> Lord, I thank you for the truth that you, you know the wrestle is real because you wrestled in it too. I thank you for the truth that as born again believers in Jesus Christ, we can find joy in suffering because we know this is your will for us and that it's doing your work in us. And Lord, I thank you for the truth that, that your plan is being unfolded for us right before our very eyes in the people that we live among. Lord, I pray that we would, as we started, that we would see ourselves as ambassadors of Jesus Christ who have been given the ministry of reconciliation, that we would go and tell people, come out of the world. Before it's too late, come out of the world, set your feet upon the rock that is Jesus Christ and allow him to do the sanctifying work in your life. Allow him to do the glorifying work in your life. Allow him to get the glory of your life. Father, most of all, I thank you for the truth that it is finished at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen.